0: I want to begin by this morning with a little little bit of an exercise in English grammar. Uh, You know, what adjectives would you associate with various emotions? With fear, I usually think of paralyzing. That's what fear often does. We talk about being frozen with fear. Uh, Grief, on the other hand, is an incredibly painful emotion. Guilt is probably a crippling emotion. Anger is consuming. We talk about people being consumed with anger. What emotion adjective would you associate with uh, the fruit of the spirit we're looking at today, which is joy? You know, you may have come up with many different ones, but the one that came to my mind, which is perhaps the most appropriate one for joy, is elusive. It's an emotion that is really hard to get a handle on. Happiness is a lot easier to define and understand. We're happy if our sports team wins. We're happy if the stock market goes up. I get happy when the sun shines and it's warm enough I can get outside. We're happy on our way to the airport on the first day of our vacation. Not sure about the last day of the vacation, but certainly the first day of it. We're happy when a sick child wakes up healthy all of a sudden. We're basically happy when person, places, things and circumstances all conspire to make us feel good. I was recently hooked by that Volvo commercial. I heard a song I never heard before. Feeling good, you know. And I've never heard the, the singer before, too, but I went and downloaded it for me. And I just love that song, you know, feeling good. <laughs> but many, many sources of scripture on joy simply don't fit those categories at all. For example, early in the, in the history of the church, Peter and and James were hauled before the Sanhedrin or the highest ruling body there and were punished severely. And yet look at their reaction. Acts 540. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and challenged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left them in the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Not exactly the circumstances that are conducive to happiness. And yet here they were experiencing joy. so it's very clear that joy is very very different from happiness another difference is that happiness if commanded comes across as almost nonsensical it's sort of like saying oh you didn't get into the university that was your first choice be happy you just got the news that a loved loved member of your family is suffering from cancer be happy I and mean, it just doesn't make sense at all Yet those are precisely the kind of commandments that we see in scripture when it comes to joy. For example, Jesus said this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, he says, and be glad. And then how about this command? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You substitute happy for rejoice and that's a meaningless statement. Be happy all the time. It makes for a nice song. Don't worry, be happy, but well, that's not how your life is like. That's what I meant when I said joy is a very elusive emotion. And yet it's one of the fruit of the spirit and the fruit are in uh, essential demonstrations of the fact that we are truly children of God and disciples of Jesus. And so we need to do our best to try and get a handle on it. That's what I'm going to do today. But it's going to be a little bit different. I'm not going to end up with some kind of an airtight explanation for all of us. Rather, I want to give you some clues, some lines along which to think, interpret life as it happens to you. So that maybe sometime down the line you might say, oh, that's what that sermon was all about. That's what happened. Last night I had somebody come and interpret an event that happened to them earlier on in the week. And said, oh, I now know what it was. You know, that, that's really the purpose that I want to give it for you. And unlike last week, where the sermon on love being so practical left you with some specific things to do, today's sermon isn't going to call on you to do anything, largely not. Really, my goal here is to awaken an appetite, get you alert to something called joy, to begin to expect it and look for it so that you won't miss it when it comes to you. That's kind of where we're headed today. For me, the most helpful insight on the nature of joy came from C.S. Lewis's sort of spiritual biography in his book Surprise by Joy, which is his journey from atheism towards God and then to Jesus. And here is his essential insight into joy. He describes one of three such experiences. He said, As I stood beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day, there suddenly arose in me without warning, and as if from a depth, not of years but of centuries, the memory of an earlier morning at the old house when my brother had brought in his toy garden into the nursery. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? Before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again. Or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just seized. In a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. An unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. Perhaps the most beautiful description of the elusiveness of this emotion called joy. It is this experiential definition, I think, that for me has been helpful. And our biblical exploration of this joy... It's going to take three dimensions. We want to begin with what I call the future dimension. In Psalm 16, verse 11, we read, "You make known to me the path of life; in your presence there is fullness of joy, and Karen referred to this already. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Both the fullness or the intensity of joy, as well as its enduring experience, only await us in heaven, where we have the fullness of the reality of God's presence before us to its fullest extent." And if we want to think a little bit more about this in the sermons on heaven that I did a few years ago, the third sermon in that series, all of it was entitled, The Joy of Heaven. So you may want to take another look at that as you continue uh, researching the subject for yourself a little bit more. It has to be the unique joy that we find only in heaven. But, while the starting point for our study is that future joy awaits us in heaven, it is something that we can ask for right now. For elsewhere in the psalmist we read these words, the psalmist writes, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? You know, not conducive to happiness. (laughs) He is harassed by people. He feels even rejected by God. Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy. Now look how he deals with it. He said, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What's he doing here? He's finding himself in circumstances that are anything but happiness producing. But he says, God, send me your truth. That illuminates me. He's praying for a fresh illumination. That will lead him. Where? First of all he says. To the holy mountain. Which is where the temple was there. And specifically he says. To the altar. The altar was where worship was concretized. In actual sacrifices. But he locates the joy that will come from it in God. To God who is my exceeding joy. So bring me to your temple. Let your truth illuminate my path. Let me go about my act of worship. But the person that I'm really seeking after is God himself, who is the source of my exceeding joy. And then he says the emotions will follow. Then I will praise you with harp, and I will praise you with a lyre. So he's asking for a foretaste of that future joy. The fullness of joy forevermore is only in heaven. But we can ask for a foretaste of that right now. Notice also that he doesn't expect to get it right away. It doesn't happen right away. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? One day it's coming. The joy is coming. There's that anticipation of that future joy. And so, that's the starting point for us. The fullness of joy forevermore awaits us in heaven. Future joy awaits us in heaven. But we can ask God for it. That's what we do when we gather together in the kind of songs that we've been singing. We're saying, God, come! I'm coming to this place. In an act of worship, I want to encounter that, a foretaste of that exceeding joy. When that comes, whenever that happens, we move to the next dimension of it, which is the unexpected dimension of joy. When future joy does invade us now in the present, as we seek God, we begin to get surprised by joy, which is the whole point of C.S. Lewis's book's title. Here are some scriptures that underline that for us. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. What he thought he was doing was just buying a field. (laughs) What he discovered in that field was something unexpected. And that fills him with joy and propels him to some significant action. The joy came from an unexpected discovery of something that he was not aware of. Uh, Something similar happens on the first Easter Sunday when the two women went to the tomb. It says they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. When they came, they were not expecting anything like this. They were expecting a sealed tomb. They didn't know who was going to roll the stone away. All they hoped to do was to finish the embalming process. All of a sudden, they found the stone rolled away, the tomb empty, and an angel saying to them, Jesus is risen. Again, a revelation of something that was completely unexpected that filled them with great joy. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, you will find there are many, many such scriptures that tie joy to the revelation of something that was unknown and suddenly becomes experienced. And you know something? That can happen anywhere at any time. Why is that? Let me tell you why. If I were to ask you right now, where are you at this moment? You would say 2459 Islington Avenue and you would be right. That would be visible reality. If you ask me where am I going to be at 2 o'clock this afternoon, I'd say 24 Bread Crescent. That would be right. That's visible reality. But what is invisible reality's answer to that question, where are you at any time? In Hebrews chapter 12, we read these words. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Invisible reality says, you know where you are? You're in heavenly Jerusalem right now. You are in the holy city. Heaven is not something that is located at the edge of outer space beyond the furthest telescope that we can possibly find out. It's not spatially connected to us. It's in another dimension altogether, which by the way means that from another perspective, heaven's that far from where we are. We're in heaven right now. He didn't say you will come to Mount Zion. He says you have come to Mount Zion. You are there right now. That's where we are, not on 2459 Islington Avenue. You might say, "Who leads you in worship?" Karen and her team. Yeah, but really, there's an innumerable choir of angels all around us singing. In festal gathering, the word festal. If you want to capture the original idea, think of the Super Bowl, think of the Olympic Games, the opening ceremonies. That's what's festal gathering. It's a joyful assembly of singing. How many people are in here? You might say, "Oh, they might look around and say 300." No. Everybody whose names are written in the book of life is here right now. Every Christian who's ever lived and who's living. The spirits of righteous men made perfect. Every Old Testament worshipper of Yahweh who was a genuine worshipper is here. God, the judge of all, the one who's the source of our exceeding joy is here. Who's preaching you might say? Well you might say I'm preaching which would be true as far as visible reality is concerned. But invisible reality says Jesus is here. Whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mediating the new covenant to you and to me through his preaching right now. You know what? Tomorrow morning when you're sitting in a jammed highway. You're still in Mount Zion. If you're in a university classroom with 400 other people listening to a lecture from a remote professor. Hundreds of miles away on television. You're in Mount Zion. This is where we are all the time, and that's why. That's why heaven can break in upon earth anytime, anywhere, any place, and unexpected joy is the result. I want to give you four such stories from my own life. Most of you have heard these, especially long timers here, at different times in different places. You've never heard them pulled together under this one thing. The first one, so I'll set them up chronologically. First one happened in 1984. I'd been here four years in this church as preaching pastor. I took a leave of absence in Sham and the kids went home to India. Six weeks of exposure to the masses of unsaved people in India, as well as the extreme poverty all around, rendered both the gospel implausible and my work here at Rexdale completely irrelevant to the real needs of the world. And I had decided pretty well, That I was going to come back, maybe try and get my job with atomic energy back, quit my work as a pastor, and not retreat into a life of atheism and hedonism, I knew too much for that, but into a privatized Christianity and said, God, you can take care of the lost and the poor of this world, I don't want to be bothered by those things. It was in that frame of mind that I went into the last uh, service, it was a Sunday evening, September 2nd, 1984. And the speaker for that day was a man named uh, Cummings. I think he was the pre- president of Wycliffe Bible Translators. He got up in the pulpit and he said, the first thing he said was, I want to say something to full-time workers. Well, all the full-time workers in the congregation were sitting on the, were on in the church, were on the platform. There was only one sitting there, me. Yeah. So I kind of got interested right away. And then he said, has the joy run out of your life? Now I was sitting bolt upright. I knew that God was going to say something. He then directed us to the to the well-known story of Jesus' uh, first miracle. So, in case there are some of you who are not familiar with the story, it was the first miracle that Jesus did. He was at a wedding, and the wine had run out, much to the embarrassment of the hosts. So, Jesus told the servants to fill up six twenty-gallon jars with water. Well, they needed wine, but he asked them to fill it up with water. And then he said. Take some of it and go take it to the steward. And he did. And they say, hey, this is the best wine of all. You've saved the best one for the last. Usually we serve this garbage stuff near the end when people are too drunk to notice. You've saved the best one for the last. And then he made four observations. He said, Jesus could have occupied center stage, but he let his servants do the work. Secondly, he said, the need was for wine, but he asked them to fill it up with water. That seemed completely irrelevant. What he asked them to do was totally irrelevant to the need. It would seem. Thirdly, he said this. Only Jesus could have turned the water into wine. But without water, there would never have been any wine. And then lastly, he said, Jesus saves the best for last. And he told story after story after story after a wicked Bible translators that had worked for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years with almost no fruit at all. Until suddenly there'd be a harvest of hundreds and thousands of people coming to Christ. I was a totally transformed man by the end of that sermon. Heaven had invaded earth in the form of pure joy and a disheartened pastor who was about ready to quit came back for 32 more years of ministry in this church and what I would have missed out if I had quit the second invasion of joy happened on September 30th 1990, Frank I know you were there that day I was preaching through uh, Nehemiah I prepared my sermon like I do, and I was ready for it. In those days, we used to sit over here. Some of you would remember that, right? And uh, that day, earlier on in the service, just like Natalie was sharing today, there was a testimony. There was a testimony from people who had just come back from uh, um, Africa somewhere. And Scott McLean, if you Scott was there that day, you know, little 17-year-old kid with the earrings, you know, Scott. And so they were talking about a doctor that they had met there, a man who was a man of real vision. And they were talking a little bit about him. And I was sitting here, and the question that came to my mind is, what does it take to become a man of vision? Yeah, my thoughts go in all kinds of directions all the time, but mostly about sermons. So, so I was thinking about that. Anyway, the service continued, and then just before I went to preach, Michelle de Montmorency was here at that point. She was singing a song, 16-year-old girl at that point. And that whole song was in the form of a dialogue between a, a young girl and God, you know. And so that was the second piece of the puzzle that came to my head. The answer to the question, how do you become a, become a man or a woman of vision? Whatever else it involves, it involves this kind of honest dialogue with God. Anyway, that was all nice thoughts and I kind of registered them before. It was the days long before you had PDAs and whatnot. And then I came to the pulpit. At that moment, heaven invaded earth. I started crying. I don't know why. All I knew was I couldn't preach the sermon I had planned. Instead, God said, you, you, you preach on the subject. What does it take to become a man of vision? I opened my mouth and I spoke for 28 minutes. That that was pure joy. Cause it was like an out of body experience, like I was watching myself preach. But God hadn't finished yet. After we'd finished greeting all the people and I was still enjoying the afterglow of what had happened, a young couple who'd just been coming to the church for three or four years they said, "Can you and Sham come with us for lunch today? Lunch. We want to talk some more about this." We did. We went to a restaurant nearby, sat down at one o'clock and didn't get up till six thirty. Five and a half hours of just work sharing this stuff. It was, it was about six to seven hours of the most concentrated experience of joy that I'd ever had in my life. It was gone the next day. The third one happened in Urbana, and many of you have heard that story recently. I was asked to speak on the subject of prayer to about 17,000 kids, most of whom were 17 to 22 years of age. That was good. It was, it was a unique experience for me, but that wasn't, that wasn't when heaven invaded earth. It happened the day after when I was supposed to do a workshop. The work, workshop was on learning to pray through the scriptures. And I, again, I kind of—I was getting mentally ready for about 20 kids. I thought, what will I do? 50 show up, you know. Okay, I had some ideas of what I would do. I walked into a room full of 900 people. And I started crying again. I was, I was rendered speechless. Ken, you were there. Right? Overwhelmed, totally overwhelmed by being allowed to have front row, center seat to what God was doing. And again, without notes, I spoke for 45 minutes. And on the way out, the kids were just still behind, asking questions. More and more and more questions. I didn't know that many young people were interested in learning to pray. And by the way, there are just four tastes of that joy, because seven years, six years later, I still keep getting emails about that particular sermon. And somebody yesterday told me, oh, I heard it. You're on Facebook. I don't even have a Facebook account. Sorry, I can't do a like, you know. (laughs) The fourth experience of this kind of joy that Lewis talked about was completely different from all of these other three settings were all in preaching settings, which is where it happens to me most of the time. I was actually sitting in a restaurant. It was a nice, beautiful, sunny day. It was a waterfront restaurant. The Mediterranean formed a beautiful backdrop. And I was talking with an international worker. And this person was sharing with me their dreams and passions and hopes for their adopted country and they were planning a retreat very soon. And the subject of that retreat was joy. And I knew I was going to be speaking on it. So we were deep into that discussion. And then it happened all of a sudden. What was a, total, what was a normal, ordinary conversation instantly got transformed into joy. I, the, a feeling welled up within my heart. And I said, I wish I could bottle this moment up and capture it forever. That's, that's the very nature of joy. Anyway, it was gone the next day. So these were kind of four experiences that I can think back upon that were my closest analogies to what Lewis experienced that day. And so that's the second thing I'd say. Unexpected joy surprises us when heaven invades earth. Future joy awaits us in heaven. Unexpected joy surprises us when heaven invades earth. And these things, as I said, because we are in Mount Zion, can happen anytime, anywhere, any place. But there is one more necessary dimension of joy that we need to talk about. Because in Philippians, I read that verse earlier on, rejoice in the Lord always. Well, unexpected joy is not always, that's periodic. I only gave you four instances in 30 years. What does rejoicing in the Lord always mean? So we have to talk about the continuing dimension as well. There's a continuing dimension to joy. Let me begin with Luke, Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10. The 72 disciples that he had sent out on ministry returned with joy. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. There were plenty of experiences of unexpected joy. Their ministry was characterized by these intrusions of joy. Where power over the demonic world uh, and signs and wonders attested to their ministry. No wonder they were joyful. And he said to them, behold, I have given you authority over all the powers of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Look at this. Nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. is that amazing? I couldn't, what would you want that would be more amazing than demonic forces being set to flight at your ministry? I can't imagine anything more joyful than signs, wonders and miracles exploding in this church all the time. Jesus said, yeah, that's good, I give that to you. But you don't need to rejoice in it. Rejoice in this, that your names are written in the book of life. Which was a one line summary of our salvation. He said, think through. This this continual dimension of joy comes from selective thinking. Choosing what we think about. He said, think about, think about what it means to have your names written in the book of life. Let me take you back to Hebrews chapter 12. Remember he said, "You, you, you have come... To Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in the book of life. What are the, And to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. The fact that our names are written in the book of life, our great salvation while again the the joy the intensity and the permanence of the joy that comes from that awaits us in the future while there can be these intrusions that are unexpected he says you can continually think about and you need to think about the fact that your names are written in the book of life for me for me that means to to choose to think about the incredible blessings of the new covenant that are mediated to me by jesus i just wrote down four of them just came out the top of my head the benefits of the new covenant Fully known and yet completely loved by God. This is the deepest longing of every human heart. Will somebody know me just the way I am and yet still love me completely? Yeah, Jesus does. Then, fully aware of my sin and yet to know that I'm forgiven and accepted by a holy God. Free from performance anxiety to please God and yet to keep straining to grow towards maturity. Most of my life is a relentless effort, although not perfect, to try and grow in maturity. But I don't have to do it to please God. (laughs) Continual access to a sovereign creator. Who is the redeemer. Lord of revelation and history. And to invoke him into every dimension of my life. These are just the four of the benefits. And there's probably hundreds more. If we would think about it. Jesus said this is what happens. Your names are written in the book of life. And I am the mediator of the blessings of this new covenant. Think about them. And there will be all kinds of occasion for joy in your life. Now, in that same passage in Hebrews, it also says, You come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The story, Abel, for those of you who don't know the story in the Bible, Abel was the first murder victim in the Bible. He was killed by his brother out of jealousy. And Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, Jesus' words don't cry out for vengeance, they cry out for mercy. And so there's a second source of joy. And that is the joy that comes from having our sins dealt with thoroughly. So much of superficiality in our joy is because we are shallow in the dealings with our sinfulness. But a profound and thorough dealing with sin in our lives leads to a profound experience of forgiveness and joy. This is what Psalm 51 is all about. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Yes, our names are written in the book of life. And yes, Jesus mediates the glories and the benefits of this new covenant. But sometimes we can lose that joy because of sin. He says, and the way back to that joy... The way back to that joy is to deal honestly and thoroughly and deeply with your sin and then experience the depth of that forgiveness. There is nothing like the joy that comes from knowing you're connected with God again, right? I bet you we could spend two hours with testimonies right from here. You've all been there and you all know that. That's when he says, mend the bones that thou hast broken. What he's saying is, let me hear words of gladness. Tell me, Jesus, it's okay. Tell me that you and I are connected again. The joy. Thirdly, this works in the horizontal dimension too. Just as relationship between us and God restored properly brings us joy, so too does a thorough reconciliation with a human being with whom we are not connected. And that too is tied to the fact that our names are written in the book of life. That's another thing Jesus wants to think about. Remember the two women in, in the Philippian church, Yodia and Syntyche, who had a disagreement with each other. Paul is writing to them to be United, look what he says here, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, also true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Next week you're going to hear a sermon on peacemaking and you'll see that as well. Somebody else gets involved in the process. Look what he says here, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Notice, he doesn't say to them, Yodia, Sintiki, stop acting like kids. You should know better. Now get on with each other. He could have done that. That's not what he does. Look at the basis for the motivation for reconciliation. What does he say? Your names are written in the book of life. That's why you and I should be connected with each other. And when you do, there will be joy. Rejoice in the Lord always and again. These are not statements that are just thrown apart from context. This joy is in the context of a restored relationship. And the motivation for that restored relationship is your name and my name is written in the book of life. Now do you see why Jesus said? Yeah, yeah, you can rejoice that the demons are subject to you. But I want you to rejoice continually in something much greater. Your names are written in the book of life and think through the implications of that. I am mediating the blessings of a new covenant. I will help you deal thoroughly with your sin and bring you joy. And you can be restored to one another and have joy as well. And then lastly, one other dimension, is certainly not exhausting the subject, is the joy that comes from service. Because you see, as we experience the comfort of a future joy in heaven, as we experience these invasions of heaven on earth, and give us these momentary experiences of unexpected joy, as we experience the continual joy of Knowing that our names are written in the book of life. And the joy of restored relationship. We then begin to share these things with others. That's why Randy and Natalie and in Bopoma. That's why you'll be hearing a testimony from Nuhum right now in a while. That's why we go out to Kentleton and send international workers. Because they want to broadcast that news to other people. And in the doing of that work. We experience joy. Because you see whenever we do. What we are meant to do. We have been created, redeemed, and gifted to do certain things. And when we as creatures made in the image of God, redeemed by Jesus, names written in the book of life, and then gifted to serve, when we do that, we are closest to the experience of joy. Oswald Chambers put it this way when he said, Joy means the perfect fulfillment of that for which I was created and regenerated, not the successful doing of a thing. The joy that our Lord, our Lord had lay in doing what the Father sent him to do. And he says, as my Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Some of you would remember Miriam Charter when she was working in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, she was, she was based in Vienna. But a lot of cloak and dagger kind of ministry in, in Ceausescu's Romania. And, you know, one time she was sitting in the parsonage of the dining room with us. And she was saying, you know, when I grew up, I used to hate camping. I just absolutely hated camping. She says, my life in Eastern Europe is a perpetual camping. He said, and I absolutely love it because this is what I have been made to do. And this past Saturday, uh, or Monday, sorry, knowing that this is a sermon I was going to be speaking on, Sham and I were having a conversation on on joy versus happiness. And she was telling me about an experience of joy. Uh, referring to a couple of weeks ago, she had two of her friends over for lunch. And she said, honey, it was so great all morning while it was busy for me getting ready for it. I was just experiencing joy throughout that process. And then during the actual lunch hour, there were amazing, unexpected intrusions of joy through the conversation that were happening and how people were reacting to one another. She was exercising her gifts of wisdom and hospitality. I know for me, I'm closest to the experience of joy whenever I'm preaching. Every one of us gets closest to this experience of continual joy when we are doing the thing that we've been created redeemed and gifted to do. Eugene Peterson in his book uh, Answering God, commenting on Psalm 126, captures it so beautifully. He says, We try to get joy through entertainment. We pay someone to make jokes, tell stories, perform dramatic actions, sing songs. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own poor lives. The enormous entertainment industry in our land is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert us after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. The effects are extremely temporary. When we run out of money, the joy trickles away. We cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased or arranged. But there is something we can do. We can decide to live in response to the abundance of God. We can decide to live in the environment of the living God and not our own dying selves. We can decide to center ourselves in the God who generously gives and not in our own egos with greedily grab. Enjoyment is not an escape from boredom, but a plunge by faith into God's work. And that's the key basis of continual joy. Anyway, there's just so much more on the subject we haven't even touched on. We haven't touched on the issue of joy in the midst of suffering and trial. But that also comes from selective thinking. What does he say in James? Count it all joy because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. We haven't even touched on the joy that comes from community. In the green room, this is all we talked about. Every person talking about joy was talking about the connection that we have with each other. And This is what Paul, when every one of his letters, Paul says, who, who is my joy? Who is my crown? But you, the people of God. And so there's just so much more to this subject. I've just tried to give you two or three things, some clues along which to live by. First of all, there's a future joy that awaits us in heaven. So expect it. And ask for that intrusion now. There's that unexpected joy that surprises us when heaven invades earth. And by the way, when it does, savor it. Savor it, capture it, relive it as much as you can. Remember, even the longing is greater than the desire itself. And then finally continual joy that comes from selective thinking. Our names are written in the book of life. That a superficiality of confession leads to a shallowness of joy and vice versa. That there's joy in restored relationships because our names are written in the book of life. And there's joy in that continual service because we are doing what we were created, redeemed and gifted to do. You know, for the last five days, we've had a wonderful stretch of weather. Every day has been sunny and warmer each day. And which, you know, is joy for me. I'm out every day. And every morning when I get up on days like that, my mind always goes to Malachi chapter 4. When the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in his wings, you will be like calves released from a stall. What a beautiful picture of joy. And that's what I want to bless you with. May the Son of Righteousness rise upon you. And may you be like calves released from a stall, walking and leaping and praising God. Go in Jesus' name.